Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Before we meet Steve McManaman, I'd like to help you find that Christmas gift you're struggling to get for the football fan in your life. My book, Barca, the Making of the Greatest Team in the World, is newly updated with 40 extra pages of content on Pep Guardiola's reign at the club, the transition to Tito Villanova as head coach, the tragic death of that great man, Pep's former assistant from cancer, There's also a new section on the brief but interesting reign of Tata Martino and a reflection on the untimely passing of my idol, Johan Cruyff, the godfather of the modern Barcelona era. The book's available everywhere, but we'd urge you to buy directly from us. Two reasons. Firstly, it'll guarantee you receive the new edition. Order elsewhere, and it's possible you get the original. Secondly, Backpage make a little bit more money if you buy from us, which helps us keep on writing, publishing, and producing these podcasts. Go to grahamhunter.tv forward slash books to buy the book from us. Now, to business. The four years that Steve McManaman spent at Real Madrid can be summed up in two Champions League wins, two league titles, and one remark from Johan Cruyff who described the Merseyside Madridista as el socio de todos, a partner to everybody on the pitch, i.e. the guy that, if you give the ball, you'll get it back in a better position than you did before. Somebody who links play. It's a good description of Steve, I think. Maka would have needed the help of an interpreter to translate such an endorsement during his early days in Spain. But you're about to hear how he overcame the language barrier by throwing himself into the social side of life at Real Madrid. In part one, Steve talks about his ambition to leave Liverpool and play abroad, the unexpected challenges of joining one of the biggest club teams in the world, and the second home he discovered in a dressing room which was supposed to be in turmoil. Disfrutalo. Enjoy. Steve, as I say to every one of my guests, because they're hand-chosen, because they're people I admire, they're not just people of achievement, I think it's a privilege to have you here, because you brought me, as a lover of football, I'm a journalist, a lot of fun, you showed adventure, you came abroad, you dominated your life by choosing to do things that you fancied, and you won at the game, I think that's a brilliant thing in life to do, but the guy who's featured most regularly across all these podcasts when I interview people has been Cruyff because of my admiration for him and I think he's the most important man in the history of organised football. And a phrase that he used about you is a phrase that I spent the summer with Federico Ardiles, Ozzy Ardiles' son, and Fede said that everybody always used to call Ozzy Ardiles el socio de todos, the guy who could link with, look after, be a friend to everybody on the pitch. And that's what Cruyff said about you, el socio de todos. Yeah. Cruyff, a genius and a man who influenced football more than anybody else, looked at you and said... There's not just a gifted player, certainly not just a winger. There's somebody who makes the team function. much do you associate yourself with Johan Cruyff's description of you? I think at Madrid, I presume he said it about me when I was at Madrid, and I think that was, you know, it was probably a lot truer at Madrid. I don't think, I wasn't that type of player at Liverpool. I was more of a maverick at, at Liverpool, and I needed to be a leader at Liverpool on the pitch really where you come then you come to Madrid 
And of course, you know, I've come to a different a different country, people speaking different languages. And we had our own leaders at Madrid. Where I was, you know, at Liverpool, I needed to step up and be the leader to a certain extent at Liverpool. In Madrid, we had the Hieros, we had the Raouls, and I was very much under the radar then. You probably became much more of a of a team player. And to be very honest, it was quite easy because we had some wonderful players at Madrid. And it was quite easy just to fit in. You know, you get the ball, you pass it to your mate. You know, we were we were so much better than a lot of the teams around. It, it football became a lot easier. Where at Liverpool, I I always felt that certainly at right at the end of my career at Liverpool, the onus was on me to make things happen. Where at Madrid, we had seven people who could make things happen, so it was quite easy to get the ball and pass it to someone who was in a better position than you, and they could pass it to someone who was in a better position than them. You know, invariably somebody created that little bit of magic because we had so many people who could do that and we'd win games and we'd win trophies and it was a very happy place to be. But you came to that conclusion yourself analytically. You could see, so already we're talking about uh, football intelligence that goes beyond what you could automatically do as a football player. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you're the one who's in the best position, you go and do it. We had, you know, a a huge amount of um, trust, a huge amount of faith in your teammates. We were all very close and we knew that. We had so many good players... You know, that if someone was in a better position than you or, you know, you give it to them and they do the magic. You know, if it was Luis Figo, it was his turn to do the magic. And if it wasn't him, it was Zizou who would do the magic. And then if it wasn't him, it would be Raul or Ronaldo as my career went on at Real Madrid. So, um, yeah, you had to trust your teammates. They were your family, weren't they? And if someone was in a better position than you, you can't be selfish, you know. I think, I mean, I completely trust what you're saying. But I don't think it rings true for the, not the majority of footballers. I think there's a strain of self-interest in football, and I think what you're talking about is actually something that's either rare or needs to be coached into the major- majority mm. of players and saying, no, I'll take this, I'll do this myself, it's probably not good for me to benefit that guy next to me, unless you're taught that way or brought up that yeah. way, or unless you've got a football intelligence. Yeah. I'm just arguing that what you've said there, oh, it makes sense, and you're looking back, there's proof. I don't think it's all that normal to say what you've just said. I think it's... Horses for courses, really. I think if you're talking about, for instance, we're, in, we're sitting in Barcelona now. If, I think if you're talking about this Barcelona team, I don't think there's a huge amount of ego. I think they're quite, you know, like a family. When you see Leo and Neymar and Luis Suarez, you know, come onto the field to play, you don't think there's a whole lot of self-interest there. I, I consider that to be very family-orientated. You've got one of the greatest players in the world, Iniesta in the field, who looks as if he's nice and quiet, looks as if he's quite... Humble. I don't know him that well, so I, I can't really say. But he doesn't strike me as in it's all about self-interest for him. He seems as if like uh, he's quite happy to let Messi have all the. You're very tolerant, man. You've tolerated me for know. all the time we know each other. I'm gonna. I don't know. With you, the you, risk you, of being boring, I'm still gonna say you've just backed your argument about what you did naturally by quoting one of the best teams has ever been and several of the best players mm. has ever been. I still argue that what you did naturally, and I, I'm not trying to bum you up, I want to understand it a little bit more, at least it's worth chewing over. Your average footballer of talent doesn't think that way. Yeah. And if you're backing up your decision-making with Iniesta and Xavi and Messi and Neymar, they're elite, elite, elite. Yeah. Who, who, I think why that did helps, you think that way? But I think that helps. I think that the higher up the chain you go and the better the better footballers you play with, I think they get it. Yeah. That's a fair they point. get it. Yeah. I think they do. Okay. I don't think it's about me, me, me. Certain players may exude that. You know, people might think Cristiano's a bit like that, the way it's all about him. But I think the, the bigger picture, he gets the fact that he's only the player he is if he wins games, if he wins trophies. That's when he becomes the player that everybody talks about. And if he loses, people will criticise him, but then he wins. 
and he wins the Champions League and then he wins with Portugal and you can't doubt him. People said to me, I always remember people back then were saying to me, you know, what's it like to play with Zidane? Because at the time we know that Florentino handpicked Luis and, you know, Zizou and we got the best. But they came into the dressing room. I mean, Zizou didn't speak the language at the time. I mean, you, you know him, he's, he's quite reserved and quite humble and quite quiet. And he came into the dressing room, the greatest player in the world, and, you know, sat down and didn't say a word and just did his magic on the pitch. So it, it was easy to integrate, as I said. The bosses in our team were Raul, principally at the start, were Manolo Sanchez, then Fernando Hierro, then Raul. That's two to start with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Spanish, Madrid down, you know, yeah. right through the core. And it was all about the team. And we couldn't have any egos. And we were more than happy, you know, we didn't want any egos. We were here to win. We were here to play. And we were here to do our best. So, you know, I came into the dressing room more than happy. I think there was a transitional stage when I turned in and Pedro Miatovic had just left and Davos Suka had just left. And there was a lot of rumours. Clarence Seedorf was just going when I was there. You know, people were saying to me, oh, that dressing room's this and that dressing room's, you know, they're all fighting with each other. And I turned up and it was a really nice place to be, actually. And... Um, I fitted in no problem at all. Even though I didn't learn the language, I couldn't be abrasive and loud because I didn't know the language. But I, I fitted in and got on well with everybody straight away. And I just thought, you know, this is home, really. Shoot me down immediately, which you're quite capable and you're welcome to do. But I wonder when you're growing up, if, if some of the things you learned and then applied at Real Madrid, which helped you, I think, make the team better on a consistent basis and also made you a footballer who stood out and won trophies. Did you learn some of that? You, you were an Everton supporter. I was an Everton supporter, yes. The Everton team you grew up watching, which I guess must shape your concept of what football's mm-hmm. about. Yep. It matches all the descriptions you've used about what yep. you want to do at Madrid. Very tight-knit, very hard-working, mm-hmm. working for each other. Devastating unit, despite you could pick out several players yep. in it who were extraordinarily talented. Yep. Were you conscious of that influencing you? Or when you look back, did it influence you? Or is that rubbish? It had nothing to do with it because um, your, your hard drive had that in your yeah, head anyway. I mean, the, I, I turned out to be the person I was and the player I was solely down to my family, really, you know, I presume. I wasn't an idiot and they would never have let me be an idiot or they would never let me be arrogant or they would never let me be self-centred. You know, my father wouldn't have allowed that. Watching Everton was great and I think joining Liverpool at 16 helped me as well because... 16, I was what? That was 88. Liverpool were in their pomp then. They were great. They were a great team. You know, I had John Barnes. You know, people know I cleaned John Barnes's boots back in the day where, you, you know, you're cleaning boots and doing this. And to learn from these characters, Barnes, Whelan, Nickel, Hansen. I had the greatest teachers in, in, in the world and they weren't arrogant. They just wanted to win. And whether it was Kenny Dalglish and Roy Evans and Ronnie Manam, you know, they'd win and it'd be right, right, forget about that. Let's go and win again. And... They just taught you, you know, the most incredible values. Forget about winning. We just won the league. Boom, that's gone now. We need to win again. And you were just driving forward. So to train, to play, to mix with these players as a 14, 15, 16-year-old apprentice for two years before literally training with them every day and joining them. They taught you everything that should be correct about football. You know, nowadays we, we get a bit lost in the, the money and, you know, the 16-year-olds are getting looked after. You know, they're getting everything before they've actually achieved anything on the pitch nowadays. You don't even have to sort of play to be wealthy or you don't even have to play football to actually achieve something. So, you know, the values that you were taught back in the day are great. And I, th- I think that's why you don't want to harp back onto it. But football now needs to sort of go backwards and start to reinvent itself again. It's not harping on it at all. I'm really pleased you've taken me to an area that's come up again and again in the podcast and that I wanted to ask you about because... 
I was very influenced by um, going to a seminar last year where um, I was interviewing Cruyff and Tuchel spoke. The Dortmund coach stood up. He's very, very, very I like young. him. I like him. Sensational ideas and man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brand of football that you watch. I, I could imagine you could have played in his team and he loved having you. He, he stood up and spoke. My name is made in front of maybe. 70 elite football clubs from around the world gathered simply to share mm. it wasn't just a discourse it was like it was proper sharing of football knowledge which again I like because I think football's a jealous game and secrets are kept when they don't need to yeah, yeah. Tuchel said uh, I made my name by being a youth coach See, when I was a youth coach I was a shop steward the best for my kids yeah, the yeah. best buses See, look at what we're doing now See, we're, we're breeding automatons robots yeah, yeah, yeah. who don't have solutions they're very good doing this as long as they're in a straight line yeah, yeah, something yeah. comes in the way and it's exactly what you said their life is too easy and we probably train them quite well and keep them healthy and lean about and keep, teach them good habits but they've got no problem solving ideas and we go back to Phil Neville and Damien Duff saying that their apprentices that's similar time mm-hmm. to you their apprenticeships were hell yeah, yeah. they were bullied yeah. things that they both used the phrase people would probably be arrested and put in jail for yeah. what was done to yeah, us yeah, yeah. and they both said themes of what you said that changed me that hardened me that taught me that mm-hmm. made me better now we can't go back to that no, exactly. No, not did, at all. Did, not did, at all. Well, you look back, you've only said positive things about what you were being taught as a 16-year-old. Mm. Were there also times when you were completely outside your comfort zone in that moment? No. I actually remember my apprentice years, the YTS years, with great fondness. But as you've just said, I when I speak to other people, you know, Steve Harkness is a friend of mine, played for Liverpool. He was at Carlisle. And he had, like you said, was sometimes bullied at times by the players. It wasn't, wasn't that bad at Liverpool. I, I don't think the likes of Ronnie Moran, I said before, the values, I think the values of the players who were there would never allow okay. them. You know, there was a little bit of okay. mickey taken, but it was yeah. never that bad. And I always just remember it with great fondness, to be very honest. And even at 16, you know, Phil Thompson was our manager at the time, ex-Liverpool legends, as you you know, and he was always barking orders and shouting at you and stuff. And I was from Liverpool, so I it just rolled off me. I, I took all that, no problem at all. I quite liked the fact that when you had a bad game, wow, he told you you had a bad game. And sometimes it could be brutal and you thought, oh my word, you know, and other people couldn't take it and other people didn't like it and other people may have went home and, you know, be really upset. But I was fine with it. I thought, yeah, you knew where you stood. He shouted at you, you're rubbish, you're terrible, you're appalling. He left you feeling devastated. And the next day, how are you? No problem. You know, you knew it was just like, there, it's gone. As soon as we leave this dressing room, we're finished. And um, it was tough, but I found it really um, fine. I was quite liberated by it all. Because I knew when I had a bad game and I was shouting at me in my, in my own brain, I knew I'd have to leave the ground. I'd go home with my father and my father would go in his eyes and knew that I'd had a bad game and I felt disappointed. So somebody shouting at me, your manager shouting at you that you were awful. I knew, I knew in my own mind anyway, you know, so it was, uh, it was never, ever a problem for me. So I never found that, that the bullying thing was not a problem. And at 16 and 17, I was training with the first team all the time, so I was quickly became one of them at a young age, and, you know, they had to look after me because I was this 17, 16, 17-year-old scout lad who was travelling with them permanently, you know, not, not getting changed because, you know, there might have only been 11 and two subs. I'd always be 15th man or 16th man, but... I was part of the first team squad very, very quickly. A year before I actually made my debut, I was one of their team or one of their squad. See, that thing you talked about, about the relentless drive to win, mm. the forget this, that's not important, it's the next thing. My perception is that in football, everybody talks about it, not, not journalists. I see a lot of managers and players, particularly when I listen to them or watch them, who, who don't think like that. They look for maybe the next contract, keeping their team up, keeping their job, mm. whatever it might be. And they use good vocabulary, 
But that dedication to winning, that ruthlessness about I'll do everything to win and I'll do it every day when I'm tired, when I'm sad, mm. when the family are unhappy with me, when I'm playing badly. That ruthlessness to win, win, win. I don't think it's as common as fans and journalists think it is. Probably not. I think football's changed now and certainly football managing has changed, isn't it? Because they are looking for three games. You know, you lose three games, you're out of a job, unfortunately. You know, and it's, it, that is sad. So maybe their focus is change to a certain extent but if you ask Luis Enrique or Pep it's all about winning isn't it it's not about keeping a job that's second nature it's about winning it's about taking your team to the next level if you possibly can it's winning the European Cup it's winning the best trophies around not for your personal pride that helps of course but you know, to take your club to a little bit of history if Pep wins it with Manchester City wow he's going to be the greatest manager ever to have lived isn't he of course so they have their own personal pressure on themselves all the time Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But you're 16, you're a very good player, you're making it into Liverpool set-up, you win a couple of games, you win a youth cup. I think it's more natural to go, well, look where I've arrived to, look what I'm, you know, you're cocking the wall, without ever losing yourself. Yet you were being shown or told, and yeah. I don't know if it was more shown or told, by Nicol, by Hanson, mm. by Douglas, by Sunis, whoever it might be, that's nothing. That's nothing, that's absolutely. Nothing. Absolutely, it's nothing. My manager at the time was Kenny Zalbish. He was the greatest player ever, wasn't he? If you're a Liverpool fan and I'm playing for Liverpool or Scottish, (laughs) he was like, it's Kenny Zalbish. When you play for Liverpool and then when you go on to play for Real Madrid, the history is all around you. And it's not about winning the Youth Cup or winning a Reserve League or winning a game on a Saturday for for the first team. It's Kenny Zalbish scoring against Bruges. It's, I don't know... Phil Neal scoring penalties in, in Rome. It's lifted, or Graeme Souness lifting the European Cup. It's Phil Thompson lifting the European mm. Cup, Emlyn Hughes. That's what's on the wall all around you. So you've actually never arrived unless you replicate and you add to the history. You, you're never as good as, as what's gone on before you. And it's the, when I arrived at Real Madrid, it was, it was <laughs> imprinted. You know what it's like. It was imprinted. Into, you've got Alfredo De Stefano was the club president or you know the honorary president they've won it five times you know I, I arrived in 1999 and they just had a barren year that year but the year before 98 they'd won the so it's like European Cups forget that you've won the league Pfft, who cares about the league you have to win the European Cup and it's this you know they talk about the undecimate now don't they and what's going to happen again and what so this strive to it's never good enough you win the league and you win the Champions League fine yeah you have to win the Champions League next year so when we won it and then we, we lost the year after in the semi-finals and won the league. It's like, mm, yeah, but you never won the Champions League one. again. Champions you haven't retained it. It's like, oh, fuck. So then you have to go and do it again. So it was, um, it was never, ever enough. 
you know, we need to we need to repeat it. And he, you know, Madrid have just won it, but it's like they instantly talk about right. We've won it now. We've won it eleven times. Isn't it great? Let's celebrate. But can we be the first team to retain it in, in the modern era? You know, in this the Champions League format. Can we retain it? So everybody's looking forward again, aren't they? Straight away, straight away. We've won it eleven times, aren't we? Great. Yeah, we are great. But let's see if we can win it at twelve. And if we win it twelve and we retain it, we will be regarded as one of the greatest teams in the world. Can we win it and win the league? Because that is nigh on impossible nowadays. It really is hard to do. Can we win the Champions League and our, and our domestic league? And that's what the good teams and the good players are constantly thinking about. Just out of curiosity, when you're growing up and you're an Everton fan, these moments you're referring to when Sunis, Phil Thompson, lift these cuts, were they, in your neighbourhood, your family, were they dark moments? They would have been, yeah. Do, do you they know what I mean? Yeah, Just conceptually. Been, yeah. yeah, of course they would. Because at that I mean, stage, you're not Steve McMahon, I mean, no, you're, no, you're, I'm, I'm, you're a fan. Steve McMahon, I'm an Everton fan, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was at that very famous game where Glenn Keeley got sent off for Everton and Rushy scored four and Liverpool won five at Goodison Park. And I was sitting, you know, bereft as an Everton supporter in the Gladys Street as my junior Evertonian thinking, you know, what's just gone on there? <laughs> you know that you're going to go to school on the Monday and you're just going to get taunted or whatever. That's just what it was. And thankfully, I went through that age of 84, 85, 86, you know, Peter Reid and Bracewells and Everton won the league and Everton won cups and the European Cup Winners' Cup. Thankfully... You know, I was a teenager going to watch that great Everton team with Sheedy and Trevor Stephen and Sharpie and Andy Gray, and it was like I was one of the lucky few to really appreciate that as a four, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old thinking, you know, how lucky am I? I'm watching Everton. 84 when Sharpie and Andy Gray beat Watford in the FA Cup final. I went with my dad. I'm a 12 year old, you know, that was. A Wembley. to Wembley and watch your team win. Things don't get better, do they? As a 12 year old, they don't get better. And then, of course. I was there everybody year, then watching Everton Liverpool and then actually playing there myself. So I was I was lucky, but as a twelve year old queuing up for your Wembley tickets and having it and getting on a bus with your father and Bust singing down songs. With your dad. That, I mean these are greatest time of my life. Singing songs with me with my dad and you know all the men and of course they're having a few beers on the way and talking not, about football and effing and blind and stuff. And you just think this is how amazing is this? I mean I had all that anyway, because I'd watch my dad play football. He he played locally in Liverpool. He was good, my dad. He was a very good player, amateur, amateur level. Positionally, yeah. what, what did he do? I think initially he was um, he was very skillful, but everybody always said, you still get it now. You're a good player, but you're, nev- <laughs> you're never as good as your father. You know, in Liverpool, he had, a, he had a good reputation, my dad. So I was always, at a very young age, of course, I was a huge football fan, but you know, from, from when I could walk, I'd, I'd be watching my father play football and I'd be in the pubs with him and sitting there and... You know, on a Saturday, waiting for the local. There used to be a it used to be called a pink echo in in Liverpool. There used to a paper used to come out about five o'clock with all the football results and stuff. And I always remember he'd play in the afternoon, and we'd go to back to the pub and sit there with this pink echo, looking at all the results and sitting, listening to my father and all his mates talk about these stories. And it was just incredible times. Was it a rich, times? witty, yeah. colourful yeah, environment? Very colourful environment, but again. Working class Liverpool, it just you know, it was just amazing. I just loved being with my father and all his mates and listening to all their stories. And you know, you just you felt part of it. Even as an eight-year-old, you felt part of. You know, you were like being a man sitting there. I guess it bring you on. It probably gives you aspirations too. I want to be like them. Mm-hmm. I want to do this. I want to, I want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And um, if you see him and he can play, I suppose you begin to model yourself on how you use the ball, what yeah, yeah. teammates mean to you, yeah. sense what camaraderie, yeah. unity, of course, yeah. definitely. Do a little privilege for those who are, are too young to have seen what you saw. What made Everton special in those days? Well, what you, what you just said there, I, I felt that without knowing the, the players at the time, there was a sense of camaraderie. You know, they played good football as well, which is always great to see. But the likes of Peter Reid and Bracewell in there and, 
you know, the wingers like Kevin Sheedy and Trevor Stephen, they played the type of, you know, the, the right type of football. But they always just seem to be a really good group of players. I always feel like you get that. You know, the successful ones, it's probably a myth and it, because they're successful, but you always feel as if you look at them and think, you know what, they all get on. You know, mm. they're all mates. I always felt that at Liverpool when I was growing up watching the, watching the great teams. I still see a lot of the players now, the ex-Liverpool players, and we have like you know a group where we'll always meet up and have a Christmas, and, and everybody gets on well. There's no idiots, and you think to yourself, that always helps that. And I look up, as I said, I look up the Barcelona team now without knowing any of them. No, you've I've met it. a few of them, and I always it. think, you know what? You're on the money. They seem all right. There doesn't seem to be any huge egos. There doesn't seem to be any pain in the arses in the team. They always look as if, you know what, let's win, and then we'll, we'll and go and enjoy ourselves afterwards. And what's more, when one arrives... They sift them out. And yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, that's what I feel. That's what I feel. I feel that when people arrive, if they come into the camp and they cause trouble or don't fit that out, I had it at, at Real Madrid with Nicholas and Elke. Nicholas came. You knew within a month there was bits in the paper about Raúl Morientes or when he goes back to France in La Keep. There's an interview. I don't like it, Madrid. And you knew within two months he's gone at the end of the season. And Nicholas played in the Champions League final. Scored goals. Yes, in the, that by a minute goal. Scored goals in the Champions League. Right? Absolutely, <laughs> scored goals, and it was vitally important. He was back in the team, no problem, and he yeah. played in the final. But you knew he's just won the Champions League. You knew that within a month he was gone. You know whether he just wasn't wasn't the right fit at the time, and he moved on to to other things. But you knew within a month or two, right? He'll go at the end of the year. I'm skipping about here. We're skipping about in butterfly fashion, um, rather than being narratively straight, but. You actively wanted to play abroad. Yes. Right? It, it was a desire, above and beyond the fact that it fell into your lap. There was such a thing as a Bosman move. Mm. And you could move for free, and that was beneficial contractually. That's nice. Yeah. We, all work, we all work to live. But you, you had some sort of yearning to, I don't yeah. know, test yourself, learn. Tell me what it was, other than just playing for Real Madrid, yeah. that drove you to say, yeah, I want something continental in my life. Yeah, it certainly wasn't... Um, the Bosman thing was, was one of those things, but it certainly wasn't financial because the money Liverpool offered me at the end to stay and join them was, was virtually on a part. I actually just wanted to, to leave. I wanted to go and play abroad. At that time, I'd never played in the Champions League, which was a huge thing. And Liverpool, back in the days of, you know, you needed to, to be champions to play in the Champions League or... You know, I hadn't played in the Champions League. I was playing really good football and I needed to test myself, I think. You know, my mother had just passed away in the May, right at the end of the season, but I'd already made that decision to go. I needed to... I don't know what it was at the time. I needed to go. I felt as if I didn't want to play in the Premier League anymore. I didn't want to play for someone against Liverpool. I wanted to go and test myself. I was playing really good football, so... I had the right type of clubs that were were interested in me, and of course Barcelona, you know, Juventus, Real Madrid, yeah, yeah. To, to name but three. Yeah, to good, yeah, good teams, yeah. And I could have gone to Italy. I was nearly going to go to Italy early on. I was taking Italian lessons that year, thinking about going to play in Italy. With Juve being yeah, the, the yeah, prime, I think, I think so. Yeah, I'd spoken to Ian Rush. I think I'd spoken to David Platt. You know, I, I said what was it like and things like that. December, January came around, and then Madrid were interested. And I thought, you know what? They just won the Champions League. That famous white kit. The lure of playing at Juventus at the time were amazing, of course. Again, the likes of Platini and all that. There was iconic figures that were inbred in your mind. But then, you know, Madrid came along and they just won the, the club, whatever it was called, the Tokyo Club World yep. Intercontinental yep. Cup at the, at the time. They just won that and they were the best team in the world. So it was like, well, you know, that's not bad. You know, they were officially crowned the best team in the world, albeit that year, they, I think they finished second in the league, I'm not sure. But it was like, wow, you know, you've got the opportunity to, to join Real Madrid. 
you know, that iconic white shirt, the Stefano era, best team in the world. What were the barriers? Were there nerves? Absolutely. Did you worry about the language? Absolutely, yeah. Domestically, did you think about, is it the right place for me to live, aside from the football? What, what were the thoughts? The thoughts were, this is going to be really difficult. I'm going to need to learn the language. I started taking Spanish lessons quite early on. But then my mother was very ill at the time and I stopped the Spanish lessons. I used to have a tutor come round to the house and I said to him, you know what, leave it. I don't want him around the house with my, my mother very ill upstairs. And um, so I was taking little, little bits of Spanish lessons whenever I could. But that was my only concern. The city I knew was a beautiful city. I lived in Liverpool. Everywhere was going to be bigger. Everywhere was going to be sort of better than Liverpool because it was only a small town of, what, 500,000 people, half a million people. So... I knew it was going to be a change. The main thing was the language barrier, that was, that was it. It was like, I'm going to have to learn the language. When I actually got to Madrid, it probably wasn't as organised. It probably wasn't as more of a family club than Liverpool. You know, they were big and they were a huge club, but they were a little bit disorganised. You know, there was no players' lounge, there was no this. I always remember the following year, actually, when Florentino came in and Butregueño, when he brought El Butre with him. I remember Butre saying to me, what did they have in Liverpool? You know, did they have a players' lounge? Did they have a crash? Did they have this? And I said, well, Liverpool have this, 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 this. And now it's a, it's a million miles away from what it was. But, you know, I always remember my wife turning up to watch the game and just standing outside, you know, in the freezing cold, waiting for the players. She used to call it the pig pen. Everybody used to stand there in this corrugated area, freezing cold, waiting for all the players it's to finish the game, get changed and come out. It's literally ridic- yeah, ridiculous, isn't ridiculous it? ridiculous at the time. And I just thought, oh, my God. Your book's very good. And I went back and read it at the time. And they, they didn't even help you find a place to live did they no not really it was a case of again back then you've joined the best team in the world get on with it get on with it but you know as I said as I said but in, in the I think I said in the book I turned up a couple of months before in the summer I'm never told Real Madrid and started house hunting on my own so nobody knew so I turned up on a Friday or whatever and organised you know 20 houses to look at without Real Madrid knowing I'd sorted out my house then so I, I picked a house on that fact find a mission and said right paperwork blah 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 it'll take six weeks to, so I can move in and it was like well cool so when I arrived back for pre-season training I moved into a house there was no five suitcases in a hotel room for me I was in I was in the house what I'm hearing away. there is the evidence of what you said you learned under Nickel and Hans yeah. and Uglish, like prepare a prepare, win yeah. be ready be ready yeah there was no there was no way I was going to be I'm stuck in a hotel room oh, I can't swing a cat in this hotel room I'm bored I'm, I'm ringing room service I was in I was in my house I mean thankfully my wife I went to pre-season training for two weeks in Austria or whatever and by the time I'd come back she'd furnished it she had the television in you know she had this in she had that so I came home went you know I'm home whoa and I'm in I'm home makes a difference a huge difference a huge difference I just drove to and from the training grounds all the time. I lived in a really nice area. So I, I come and did all that without anybody knowing. And I always remember there were sightings of me in Madrid because I was this new signing. People were like... <laughs> so the press were going absolutely ballistic because I was in Madrid. The new signing was in Madrid looking at houses. And nobody knew. So it was like, where the bloody hell is he? He's been seen at, in a restaurant. He's been seen at such a place. And then I went back. I picked a house and went back to the airport and the press were waiting for me at the airport and they were like, you know, we can't believe you're here and nobody knew about it. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll see you later. And I was back on the plane back to Liverpool. My house was done. So it was just a matter of moving in and getting, you know, getting some furniture in and making it livable. You've touched on something that I, um, having lived here, I noticed very much. There are certain players who achieve 
and are respected for achieving. Certain players who maybe don't achieve and are liked anyway. There's a group of players in the middle, and I think it's a small group who maybe achieve, but are liked irrespective of what they've done on the pitch. Mm. Maybe they've got character, maybe they're cheeky, maybe they represent the club's philosophy or idea, but the fans just want them. I've always felt, uh, while you were playing here and subsequently when you went away, something that you did, your comportment, your, like, maybe your bravery on the ball, like, give me the ball, I'll do mm. something with the ball. If the team's not working, I'll make something happen. So I think you approach football irrespective of wanting to win all the time. You should fun you should football's yes, definitely. friendly Absolutely. side am I right and that's what or certainly the, I feel them, the fans and the media think this about you I think you were liked and respected as a character even above what you yeah, were at Madrid I think so I think so I was always a very friendly type of play, uh, person anyway so um, you know I was at Madrid and even though I couldn't speak the language initially I was always you know I'd always smile I'd always shake hand, people's hands I'd always say hello to people I was never you know, I was never cold or frosty with people. I'd always sign autographs. Ten minutes just to sign a few autographs, whatever. I'd get trophies off some of the fans, like, you know, the best person in the dressing room. You know, and things like that. And you think to yourself, even though I didn't understand it, I had a decent relationship with people. I think it was just because they felt, or people probably felt, you know what, he's all right, he's all right, him. He, you know, he's a nice fella, him. Even when I, that trip, went, when I went to Austria... First pre-season. The first pre-season. I couldn't speak, well, I could speak conversational Spanish, but of course, I was in, I shared a room with Manolo Cannavale's name was. He couldn't speak a word of English, I couldn't speak a word of Spanish, but I knew he was a nice lad, and he knew I was a nice lad just by, we'd smile, we'd, you know, do rude hand gestures, you know, we'd say stupid things to each other, but he knew that I was okay. And I'd sit with the lads and have a couple of beers, and I'd just sit in silence, but they knew I was all right, because I went out my way. I didn't go, just go and hide in my bedroom. It was like, right, I need to get involved with the lads. So they'd all, ten of them would have a beer and speak Spanish, and I'd just sit there and have a beer with them and smile and, you know, say buenos dias or whatever. They knew, without knowing me, because, of course, I couldn't speak the language, they knew that he's okay. Him. Because anybody listening to this who hasn't lived abroad doesn't know that if you're sitting in a group of people with whom you'd like to say something witty or keep up with the oh, conversation or contribute and, and you can't understand a damn thing no matter who you are that can be quite intimidating yes, or you definitely. feel a bit foolish or it, it'd be akin to what people feel if they're you know deaf or blind yeah. or dumb it's, you, you've got a handicap temporarily in your case so like it, it's a conscious thing that you have to show you can't Absolutely. hide you can't go in like yeah. fucking oh, I'm tired of this yeah. train my arse off double session yeah. I'm fucking knackered I can't understand anybody yeah. I tell you what I feel I'm shit just, I'm going yeah, to bed I'm going to go to bed and what just sit there so I just yeah I went out my way and that was they were the lonely parts you just felt I have to sit if they say you know and they'd always invite me we're going to go to such a place do you want to come and I'd go yep you know it was never a case of oh no you know what I'll just I'll take the easy option I'll sit in my room and read a book it was like yep yeah, we'll go and you just sit there again and you laugh and you smile and you try and get involved. But as you know, Spanish people speaking Spanish, even if you understand it, they're that quick. They're speaking slang. They're telling jokes. It's like sitting with six scousers. It's machine on fire. It's just, bah, 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 yeah, it's just impossible to understand. So you just have to put yourself out there and think, you know what, this is, this is what I have to do. That's what I did. And they knew that I was OK. They knew, you know what, Mac is all right. The Big Interview is produced by Backpage and me, Graham Hunter. The music you always hear, the music that you love, is Beer Jacket, who's always been there for us. Big hug to you, baby. You can keep up with everything that we do, within reason. You can enter exclusive competitions and put your questions to our future Big Interview guests by getting on the mailing list at grahamhunter.tv. How many times do I have to tell you? Yes, several thousand of you have done it, but... Come on, slackers at the back, sign up. 
That grahamhunter.tv site is also where you can buy the new updated version of my book, Barca, The Making of the Greatest Team in the World. It's my account of the Guardiola era at the camp now, from 2008 until 2012, plus Tito, Tata and Adios Johan Cruyff. It is in all good bookshops now, but it does also make a big difference to all of us who've worked on the project if you choose to buy direct, particularly for Christmas, at grahamhunter.tv forward slash books. You'll be sure to get the new edition and you will be helping us to continue producing independent content. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being there. Without you, this would be fun, but a lot less fun. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.